I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well. Um, I'd like to read uh, this passage of Scripture for us this morning. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for these stories that are such vivid encounters in the life of Jesus Christ. They remind us of your love and compassion for all people. They speak of your grace and your concern for individuals. And they remind us how much you love us and the people who live around us. And I pray that you would guide us and teach us, show it is what you want us to take as an application from this message today. Amen. This past summer, the theme for the Evangelical Free Church National Conference was 
we must go through Samaria. And it was taken from this passage of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. We came together this summer to talk about our need to reach out to the people that live around us who may be different from us. Our world is changing. In America today, the world is coming to America. We have uh, thousands and even millions of new immigrants who have come into this country that are living in our cities and in our rural areas. Uh, we see that even in our own community, changes that are taking place as the world is coming to us. And the question is, how will we respond to that change in our world? If I were to give you a snapshot of the Evangelical Free Church, this is what we look like today, and these statistics actually are from October 2007. We have about 1,291 churches, and that uh, adds up in a weekly attendance. We have about 356,000 people who are in worship on a weekly basis. We're not large in terms of denominations. We're a small denomination in that regard, but we have several large churches like our own. We have 180 new church plants. Many of those are Hispanic church plants that are starting, including in the state of Minnesota. We have about 300 urban and intercultural ministries, and it's really kind of exciting to see the list. You know, there are African-American churches, there are Chinese evangelical free churches, there are Korean churches, there are uh, Liberian churches, Somalian churches. I mean, it's a whole range as you look at the variety of evangelical free churches today that are existing in the inner city and urban areas. And we have about 550 inter international min missionaries uh, who are working in 45 countries, like those that we support and have sent out from our church or with the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, they are laboring to bring the gospel to people who have never heard it around the world. Now, if you were to look at, at our denomination and kind of where we started from, most of you know we came out of a Scandinavian background, and the Evangelical Free Church was given birth by uh, those that were of Swedish descent and Norwegian Danish descent. And they wanted to be free of the state control of the church. That's where the word free originally came from in our name, Evangelical Free. Free meaning wanting to be free of the state control of the church in those Scandinavian countries. Today here it refers to the autonomy of the local church to be able to govern itself, call pastors, make decisions about its ministries. We're not a top-down ministry. We are a grassroots denomination. And the word evangelical refers to our commitment to the Scriptures as our authority and to our belief and practice that men and women, boys and girls, need to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But largely as a denomination coming out of that kind of Caucasian background, we've been pretty white. And we're trying to mix together, if you will, some vanilla and chocolate and other different flavors into our denomination. And I love our national conferences where we have done that more and more. And we've had speakers who have come from many different ethnic backgrounds who are sharing the platform and speaking and challenging us to reach out to our Samaria. And that phrase comes from Acts 1.8 where Jesus charged the disciples to go and to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. That would be like our hometown. In Judea, that's kind of like the region in which we live. 
and in our Samaria. That's geographically close. We define Samaria this way as geographically close, but culturally different. And then to the ends of the earth. And as a church and as a denomination, we've done a better job on reaching our Jerusalem or Judea. And then also we have sent people out to the ends of the earth. But we have struggled with reaching our Samaria. Reaching those individuals who maybe are ethnically different, who have religious differences, such as coming from a background where they were Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim. In the United States today, many of the churches that have closed in the urban areas are being bought up by Muslims and they're becoming mosques. There are people uh, living in the Twin Cities area, and you've seen it. There are Buddhist temples that are being built here, as well as mosques and Hindu temples. And they are there, and they're kind of, you know, behind the scenes. But there are people living there, as there are thousands of immigrants that have come and settled in these areas. How will we reach them? It's really easy to ignore or walk past our Samaria. But we can't do that and be the church that God wants us to be. Because if you've read the last book of the Bible, you know that one day standing before the throne of God, there are going to be people that have come from every tribe and language group and ethnic group in our world that are going to stand there and worship God together. God likes that kind of richness of diversity. That's why He made us the way we are. And it's why He's given us this challenge in the Great Commission to bring the Gospel to all people. Now in chapter 4, what we're looking at today is this conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. It's the second conversation that Jesus had with an individual in John. The first one we looked at last week was with Nicodemus, this religious leader well respected in his community. And yet Nicodemus had some things that he needed to know about the Gospel and about Jesus Christ. This second encounter now is with this woman at the well, and she is a Samaritan. And just to kind of enrich this passage for you, let me give you a little bit of background about the Samaritans. Samaria was the region just north of Jerusalem and Judea. It lies between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee to the north. Today, when you hear the term the West Bank, when it's referred to Israel, it's kind of a kidney-shaped area that's taken out of the very heart of the country between Jerusalem and Galilee. That's Samaria. And it's interesting how many things are similar today still. People try to avoid Samaria or go around Samaria. Tour groups don't go into Samaria because it's not quite as safe. And the same was true back then. The Samaritans... That northern tribe of Israel, or that area, the northern tribes of Israel, had been conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The Assyrians had a practice of they would take their captives out of their home country, move them somewhere else, and then they would bring other captives in and have them settle in that region. And so northern Israel, as the ten tribes were basically lost, became resettled by other people groups. And they brought with them their idols, their false gods. There were some Israelites still there who worshipped Yahweh, Jehovah. But their religion became more and more mixed. 
And the Jews who felt like they were purer in their faith and beliefs in Jerusalem looked down on the Samaritans. When the Jews came back from Babylon and tried to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans opposed them. When Nehemiah tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the Samaritans again opposed what they were doing. In 400 B.C., the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim in this area where Jesus is. And in 128 B.C., the Jews came in under John Hercanus and they destroyed it. So back and forth, conflict, animosity, hatred even between these people groups. So that's the setting. And that's why it must have been very surprising to the disciples when Jesus said, we must go through Samaria. I mean, Jesus, why are you doing this? You know, I know this is the shortest way to take the mountain route, the high road from Jerusalem to Galilee, but Jesus, almost everybody else just goes around this whole area. They go down to the Jordan River, they make their way across, go up on the Transjordan side and come back into Galilee. Why are we doing this? Why would we take the time and go through Samaria? The reason is, it's because it's a part of Jesus' mission. And this passage is a vivid reminder that God's love is for all people. God's love is for all people. I want to point out to you three things this morning that I hope will be an encouragement to you and to all of us here. Um, You're going to get a picture here of kind of three different kinds of hearts. A picture of a tired heart, a picture of a thirsty heart, and a picture of a satisfied heart. When I look at the first section here, it is a reminder that God often works through tired hearts. In verses 1 to 6. The Pharisees were watching John the Baptist and Jesus closely. They were concerned about any potential messiahs being troublemakers. So in order to avoid their close watch, Jesus decided to go back to Galilee to minister. And when John says that he had to go through Samaria, there is this sense of divine commission. Jesus had a reason for going there. And he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. It is a small village near the town of Shechem. And it was here that Jacob, one of the forefathers, one of the patriarchs, once lived. And his well was there. The same well is still there today. It still flows. It has a spring that flows into it. And yet it is a well also, about 75 to 100 feet deep. Jesus came to that well and he was tired and he was thirsty and so he sat down by the well to rest. It maybe had kind of a stone ledge around it where he could sit down or rest against it. And it was about the sixth hour, John tells us, which means it is noon. High noon. It's hot. He's been traveling on a difficult road through the hill country of Judea and he has come to this place and he is tired and thirsty. It's a statement about his humanity. I mean, Jesus was truly God and he was truly man. You see pictures in John of his omniscience, his power, his authority, and you also see pictures of his humanity. He got tired just like us. 
And that should be, in a sense, an encouragement to us because all of us get tired too. And we need those stops along the way for rest and refreshment. But God can also use us when we are weary if we will let Him. I think of a couple years ago when I had the opportunity to go to Peru for a pastor's training project. I shared with some of you at that time that that was the toughest trip for me that I had ever gone on in terms of physically because of the altitude, being at about 12,000 feet. I mean, it just takes time for the body to adjust, and when you fly in and are there quickly and begin to serve or minister, you don't have time for your body to adapt to that very well. I had a low-grade headache. I had poor sleep. I felt like I'd wake up at night needing a little bit more air than I was getting. And I went to this pastor's training, and America, who was there with me doing the translating, you know, we were sharing, and I'm sharing my heart as best as I can, but I'm feeling yucky physically. You ever had a time like that where you just, you know, you're trying to do something and you just do not feel sharp, you don't feel your best, you're wondering, are you able to communicate at all? And in the middle of that conference, that retreat, Americo just stopped. And he asked the pastors, you know, are you guys getting this? How are you feeling about what you're hearing and the teaching that's being presented? And it was in that time, I shared with some of you, that it was a holy moment. And the pastor said, do you really want to know how we are responding to this? And we said, yes. And they said, we want to pray. That God had spoken to their hearts in a powerful way and they just wanted to pray and lift these things up before God. They wanted to be the kind of pastors who would train and encourage and equip their congregations that God had called them to. And there... We just took this break and guys got down on their knees and some were standing and some were sitting and in their style, everybody prays all at the same time. And they pray out loud. And there were these conversations and you could hear and see the passion that they had in their heart. It was another example to me of how when we are weak, God is strong. And He works through us in spite of our physical limitations. Oswald Sanders once said that the world is run by tired men and women. (laughs) From moms and dads, to world leaders, to missionaries and pastors, to those of you who have full-time jobs and volunteer at church and give of your additional hours in the community and in school and at church, you're tired, aren't you, some of the time? You're running, you're busy, you're doing a lot. Pastor Kent Hughes wrote, that most souls are won by tired people. The best sermons are preached by tired men. The best camps are run by exhausted youth ministers. The third world is being evangelized by tired missionaries. Christian organizations are being run by tired men. And you show me a super VBS, and I'll show you some tired women. Amen? That's right, isn't it? I mean, that's just the way it is. And we can't, we can't be like that all the time. We all need rest and refreshment. We need breaks in our life. But the truth is, if you're going to do anything significant for God, you're going to have times in your life when you are tired. And you're giving of yourself, and you're sacrificing, and you're putting in more time in different areas. Because today's the day to work. And that time is going to come Night's coming when no man can work. 
And that final rest is coming when we will be in God's presence. And we will have a reward for the things that we have done. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank all of you who give so much and serve in our church in so many different ways. To honor God and help others to know Him and to grow in their relationship with Him. Because that's what it's all about. So the tired hearts, that's us. And the encouragement is that even Jesus at times when He was tired too. So why do we do it? Well, we do it because our world is filled with thirsty hearts, like the woman at the well. You could hardly have found two people more different than Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Nicodemus was a Jew. The woman was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee of a very respected religious group. She had no religious party or affiliation. He was well-educated. She was uneducated. He was a politician, if you will. He was a part of the highest legislative body in Judaism. She had no status whatsoever. He was highly moral. She was immoral, as we are going to see. He was well-respected. She had no reputation at all. In fact, that's maybe why she came in the middle of the day to draw water. Most people didn't do that. They came in the cooler parts of the day to get their water. She was there at high noon maybe to avoid the others who had shamed her and looked down on her. He was a man. She was a woman. He is named Nicodemus. We don't know her name. She is just the woman at the well. Yet they do have some things in common. Both thought they were spiritually okay. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, both of them thought that they were just fine with God. Just like today, if you have a conversation with somebody about spiritual things, just about everybody thinks that they're going to heaven, just about everybody thinks they're okay in their relationship with God, you know, nobody ever wants to say, well, I think I'm going to that other place. You know, you just don't. And yet both of these individuals were spiritually empty and both needed Jesus. So don't let that stop you from talking to someone who has a need spiritually. Notice how Jesus reached out to her. It is just a masterful example of how we can reach out to others as well. And first of all, in verse 7, Jesus asked her for some help. He asked for a drink of water. Will you give me a drink? And she was surprised by that because a Jew wouldn't usually talk to a Samaritan And certainly a rabbi would not talk to a strange woman. And even more so, the Jews taught that to drink from a Samaritan's cup would make you unclean. It would make you defiled if you used their vessels to drink water. And yet what this woman doesn't understand is that Jesus is not defiled by what he touches. Whatever Jesus touches becomes clean. And he was reaching out to her. And Jesus planted a seed in verse 10 when he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd be asking me for living water. He planted this seed. What's that about? You know, and I'm sure she's thinking, Here you are, you're asking me for a drink of water, and now you're saying, You have water that you can give to me? Living water? 
Jesus used the physical to talk about the spiritual. He used real water and real thirst to talk about something spiritual, living water. And she didn't understand. She's going, you know, Jesus, this well is deep. I mean, we're talking 75 to 100 feet deep here. How are you going to get this water? You have nothing to draw with. Who do you think you are? I mean, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's a little bit offended maybe even. Jesus, who are you? And indeed, he is greater than their father Jacob. What Jesus was doing is that he was raising questions and challenging beliefs all in a very gentle and winsome way. Do you ever wish you could do that as well as Jesus? I do. I try. You know, I've been trained um, in apologetics. I know how to defend the faith. I know that there are answers to the questions that most people ask if they would just take the time to look for those answers. Sometimes, when you get into a discussion with someone, it can be real easy, though, to give the answers in kind of a way that just, you know, can blow them out of the water even if you want to. But you can win an argument and close somebody's heart at the same time if you do that. Part of our learning people skills is learning how to communicate spiritual truth in a way that doesn't close someone's mind. That's why you don't have to give all of it at one time. You don't have to kind of back up the dump trunk and dump it all at one time. You just have to kind of answer the question people are asking, see how they respond, go to the next one and the next one. This summer, um, Ben and I were out in our front yard and we were uh, doing some work one evening and Ben was playing soccer and um, there were two Mormon missionaries, young men who are living in our community who came by. I know what they believe and they probably have a pretty good idea of what I believe. And so I didn't want to get into an argument with them, but they came up and they started a, initiated a conversation. And all I wanted to do that evening was simply kind of probe where they were at. And I, I compared the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And I just said, you know, here's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is true and why I don't believe the Book of Mormon is true. And I said, you know, if you take those two books and you read them, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, when I read in the Bible about Jerusalem, there's a real city, Jerusalem, that has a history, and I can go there even. When I read about the scenes and the places in which these stories take place, like the woman at the well, you can go to Shechem today. There's a well there that's Jacob's well. There's a Jordan River. There's a Galilee. I mean, everything in the Bible fits with history, people, places, real events, historical events. And every time skeptics have questioned something in the Bible, as we've discovered things in archaeology, it has been confirmed over and over again. But I go, the Book of Mormon claims to be the history of North America and the people that lived here before us before European immigrants. And yet, there is absolutely nothing in the Book of Mormon that fits with history, that fits with people or places or geography. Nothing's ever been discovered in archaeology. It's fiction. It was put together in that way. And I go, you know, that's why I believe the Scriptures and not the Book of Mormon. And I said, how do you respond to that? 
And they knew that. And all they could say was, well, we really think that someday something's going to turn up in archaeology that's going to give some support for that. But it's not there. And I said, that's why I put my faith in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Not the one talked about in the Book of Mormon. There are times when we simply, all we can do is kind of challenge people and gently do that and cause maybe doubts to arise where you hope that they'll take the next step to investigate. There are other times when we can share the gospel and we find that kind of thirsty, receptive heart. We should have had a couple white roses up here this week. Um, Pastor Ron had the opportunity to lead an individual to Christ and meeting with them this week. And there was another young boy that accepted Christ we heard about uh, just today uh, that accepted Christ this past week. And what a joy that is to find those thirsty hearts that are ready to come to know Christ. And that's the last point I want to make this morning. That only God can give us a satisfied heart. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. And what is the water that Jesus spoke about? It is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the source of eternal life. And eternal life doesn't just refer to its duration It is a whole new quality of life altogether. It is the abundant life that He talked about in John 10.10. It is joy and it's peace and it's a growing understanding of who God is. It's the assurance of our salvation and knowing that our sins are forgiven. It's the richness of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the worship we experience when we come before God and we know that we are right with Him. That's what eternal life is, and that's why it's a present possession of every believer. And the woman at the well still didn't understand Jesus. So he took one more step, and he asked her to call her husband. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus revealed his knowledge of this woman when he said, you are right in saying that. Because you've had five husbands, and the man you have right now is not your husband. She was a woman who was living an immoral life. And Jesus put his finger on the very issue that she needed to deal with. And she recognized by his knowledge that Jesus was a prophet. So she asked him a question about worship. Now, I can't say for sure whether this was a genuine question that was troubling her or whether it was just kind of one of those smoke screens. If you've ever shared the gospel with someone and you are talking and you start to get personal about what do you believe about Jesus, the most common question I am asked is, well, what about those people in Africa? Or what about those people that have never heard the gospel? What's God going to do with them? Sometimes the question is legitimate and sometimes people are just asking it as a smokescreen because they don't want to talk about their heart. And it's just gotten very uncomfortable for them. And I have a sense that that's what this woman is doing. She asked, well, Jesus, what do you think? You know, you Jews say we ought to worship in Jerusalem. We say we ought to worship here in Mount Gerizim. Which is it? And Jesus basically says the question is irrelevant. Because God is spirit, and he is not bound by time or place. 
The most important thing is that we worship God in spirit, in our heart, knowing Jesus Christ. And we worship Him in truth, with honesty and openness. And we worship in the way that God has shown us in His Word. When people ask me that question, what about you know, the, the heathen in Africa or something like that, I always say to them, you know what? We can trust God. God said to Abram, Will not the God of all the earth do what is just and right? And I believe that God will. But your situation is not that situation. You know about Jesus Christ. And the question that God's going to ask you is, What will you do with Jesus? And I bring it back to them. The woman here heard the response and she said, I know that the Messiah will explain all of this when he comes. And Jesus said to her, I am he. Literally, the way it reads in the Greek, Jesus said, I am. And he took that name of God that God had given to Moses in the Old Testament and he said, I am. It's the only time before the cross where Jesus voluntarily disclosed that He is the Messiah, that He is God. There's no baggage here in Samaria. There's no kind of assumptions that are going to get in the way for her. And Jesus declared openly, I am the one that I claim to be. So my question for you and for me this morning is, when we think about applying this, who is our Samaria? And where do they live in our community? Is there someone who's moved into your neighborhood that is culturally, ethnically different from you that you could build a relationship with? Is there someone at school who is kind of an outcast or maybe looked down on as different that you could begin to reach out to? Is there someone in our community that is very poor and socially and economically they are different and God wants you to build a bridge? to reach them for Christ. My question is, who is our Samaria? And what will we do to introduce them to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, this area can be very difficult for us, and we need your guidance and direction. Would you show us who it is that you want us to reach out to? Would you open our eyes to see those people that are sometimes hidden people, even in our communities? our towns and our villages. And Lord, help us not to walk past them, but to see them as Jesus sees them and to love them as you love us. We pray this in your name.